listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. Wherever you are on planet Earth, wherever you are in the USA, and I would also add planet Earth, including different continents, the European Union, South America, nations like China, and so on and so forth, the, the global world, the new global world, which in the, wor- in the words of the former and famous communications theorist Marshall McLuhan, we, we have long ago entered the global village. The idea is that via technology, our world has actually become smaller and interconnected because of that technology. So the world has shrunk. It hasn't really expanded. Now, we just happen to live, you happen to live, I happen to live, in the single most pivotal moment in the history of mankind. And if you or I or anyone fails to recognize the awesome significance of this moment, then I would suggest to you that you have failed, or I have failed, or together we have failed. If we do not recognize the priority the significance of the moment that we live in, in time and space, then we have failed. When you say, well, we have failed in what? How did we fail? The universe, as you know, the universe, as the Bible declares, planet Earth, as the Bible declares, has been created by an infinite superior intelligence, also known as the biblical God or the infinite personal living God of the universe. And this infinite personal living God of the universe created what is called creation. That's everything around us. And he created this creation according to his laws or the word of God. And his laws, God's laws, the creator's laws with a capital C, have been created in accordance with God's uh, moral system, God's uh, system of right and wrong, God's system of creativity, of science, education, art, knowledge, etc., etc. When you look around the world, you have, you, you have to have flatlined in your brain if you were to walk into a, an emergency room in a hospital, and if you've ever seen somebody die or die and then come back to life or whatever in a hospital room, and you, and you see all of the uh, television sets, the monitors that measure uh, all different kinds of biological or body-brain rates to give the, the doctors an electronic indication or an electronic measurement of your of your status are you alive or are you dead and and when a person dies all those different monitors with the bouncing graphs that go up and down all those different monitors all the different graphs they stop going up and down you know like like electronic stock market reports and stuff like that all those graphs that that go up and down which which also signifies life when, when they all begin to stop bouncing up and down, and then they just flatline, and all you see is one 
horizontal line across the television monitor. And then if you look at several television monitors in the emergency room, and they all go into an electronic flat line where all you see is that one horizontal flat line across the television monitor, and then there's the alarm that goes off. And the alarm uh, is, is communicating to the doctors and the medical staff and others. It's loud enough so that it cuts through the noise. It plays at the nurse's station. And when a person flatlines, that alarm goes off. So you see the flat line on the graph, and then simultaneously you hear that alarm go off. And, and that is telling you, in most cases, that somebody has died because there's no, there's no up and down on the graph because the, the activity of being alive has ended. And when the activity of being alive has ended, the electronic graph flatlines and the alarm goes off. And it's a scary and eerie thing to be in a room uh, looking at somebody you love uh, hooked up to all these tubes and meters and stuff with nurses and doctors and stuff all gathered around because because it's it's life and death is like literally a moment by moment thing. And you see sometimes somebody begin to flatline and the, the terror fills your heart. <clears throat> and then sometimes people flatline and then sometimes they bounce back. Sometimes they flatline, the alarm goes off. And uh, they grab that electronic instrument. I think it's called a defibrillator or something. And what it is, as many of you know, uh, is they place that over the chest area on a person's body because underneath that chest area in a person's body is their heart. And when their heart is beating at all, it's, it's registering an up-and-down uh, electronic graph that, that shows the activity of the heart beating, and it shows uh, that the person's still alive. But when a person dies, all the activity on the electronic graph simply flatlines and the alarm goes off. So usually they grab this electronic instrument, and by this, by, by this time they're in like, they're moving at like 100% speed rate, and they, and they place the electronic instrument on the chest of the person and they hit them hard with the electronic instrument which which i guess fires off a tremendous amount of uh electrical energy electrical voltage which passes through the skin and and the power of this electrical voltage or electrical energy hits the heart with a electrical force, and literally, uh, if successful, successful, it jump starts the human heart. So somebody could be flatlining, or somebody could have already flatlined, and if they get to them in time, they hit them with this machine. Uh, a massive amount of, of electrical energy comes out of the machine and stimulates the heart, because of, co of course all the major functions of the human body are electrically. Charged and the human heart uh, is beats based on an electrical charge, so they can save lives. And I've been in these rooms where where 
I've been asked to make a life and death decision. And, you know, I'm not God and you're not God. And I don't like being placed in that position because I'm not God. Nor do I have all the knowledge, but I do have a basic Christian worldview. And I remember being in a particular emergency room a number of years ago with somebody we knew. And uh, there, were, there, was, there was a kind of a little war going on between me and the nurses and the doctors uh, regarding uh, keeping somebody alive with the electronic instruments or unplugging them. Uh, which would have meant that they died. Now, again, I'm not God. I, I, I can't make all the decisions, but this is one of these situations in life where whether you're God or not, you the football that's being passed around the room is put in your lap, and for legal reasons, you have to make the final decision because the person whose life is hanging in the balance, they are essentially unconscious, and they can't make the decision. And I remember I remember clearly sensing, intellectually understanding that that the, the clash in the in the room, in the emergency room regarding this person's life and, and in other situations in this hospital. I remember distinctly perceiving that that the, the real conflict that was going on between me and the doctors and nurses and I made no pretense whatsoever about playing doctor or whatever. But I remember sensing that the real conflict was there was a conflict in worldviews going on, a biblical worldview versus a humanistic worldview. So they kept accusing me of being cruel because they said, well, you're being cruel. Can't you see? Because every time... You, you keep this person alive, you know, you're putting them through incredible agony and pain. You're, you're causing human suffering. And of course, I had no interest and have no interest in ever adding to human suffering. And so, so they're really pressuring me to, to legally have them pull the plugs and let this person die. But they don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of minutes. Admittedly, they have vastly more experience, training, and expertise than I do. But all I have is God, common sense, and I have a far And this is the thing that you've got to remember. In situations like that, who has the most compassion, the most love, and the most commitment towards an individual that is knocking at heaven's door? Well, usually it's the family member, the husband, the wife, the relative, the son or the daughter, somebody through a bloodline connection. Okay, most of the time that individual has a personal relationship with 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 the the patient that they're they're pushing to be unplugged. Well, to them, and I don't care how altruistic and how compassionate the nurses and doctors may be, I'm not saying they're not compassionate. And loving. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that they don't have a personal relationship with the individual who they're asking me to legally have the plug pulled. So when you don't, when you when you don't have a stake in the game, and this goes for business, 
This, this is a life principle that transcends all kinds of situations. When you don't have skin in the game, when you don't have a personal uh, involvement in what's happening, there is absolutely no way that somebody who doesn't even know the patient, who doesn't even know their name or what kind of their favorite ice cream is or whatever, and, and they don't know the person's name unless they happen to look at the chart at the foot of the bed, so they don't have a personal, close, intimate relationship with the individual of which they're making a life and death decision. Now, that doesn't mean I'm more knowledgeable about medicine, because I'm not. But I have a personal commitment to the individual who, is, who they want me to unplug. And that personal commitment gives you a far higher degree of love and compassion and concern, because you're looking at that person as, as somebody you've perhaps known for 40 years. You're looking at that person through the eyes of somebody who loves them personally and knows them personally. To the nurses and doctors, no matter how well-meaning, that's just one patient out of the hundreds of patients they'll probably see in you know a two or three month time period. And, and who knows how many go through that life and death decision. I mean, it's like a conveyor belt. Again, I'm not knocking them for, for, for the situation, but let's be realistic. Unless you're really committed, you cannot love a person completely. You can't carry the weight of making a life and death decision regarding a person unless you have a personal relationship, a personal commitment, and a personal relationship with that person that maybe has lasted a, a lifetime. It's only then that you're walking in a stream of deep love that you can make a decision that it's not what we would call a utilitarian decision. In other words, I'm not making a decision based on some kind of secret hidden budget that the hospital has about how many kickbacks they get or monies are transferred or profits they make. You know, every day a patient stays in a hospital it's very costly to the is to to the hospital, the insurance companies, the doctors. There's a lot of unseen money uh, pressures going on, and so but so so like a like a psychological battering ram. They kept accusing me of being cruel, and I said I'm not being cruel. I just I looked at them and I said because I'm not going to bend to their psychological manipulation. I said to them, I'm not interested in increasing anybody's suffering. This is so-and-so, somebody I've known for over 50 years, and I love deeply and care about. You, you have no idea how much I love this person, because you don't even know the person. So how can you accuse me of something which you know nothing about? I said, all I want from you, talking to the doctors and the nurses, all I want is to, to know without a shadow of a doubt that if the plug is pulled, that it was the right decision to make, not just the, the expedient decisions, but that I want to know in my conscience that we did and I did everything I could. We did everything we could to attempt to, to, to keep this person's life going, to keep this person's life alive. I said, that's what I'm looking for. And if we're going to cheat on that for, for some other reason that I, that I may not know about it, I couldn't live with myself. And they said, well, if you, if you, you know, because she was flatlining, and I don't remember how many times I asked her to be brought back. It wasn't that many. It was, 
a few times because I asked her to be brought back because there were signs, visible signs from their electronic monitors that there was a potential. The electronic data was easy enough to understand that I realized that this loved one had a potential of being brought back or or at least a 50-50 chance or something. And I wasn't going to just blow that 50-50 chance away through doctor-nurse pressure. And so I didn't bend to their, to their pressure, their psychological pressure, because they were manipulating, you know, arousing the emotion of guilt, manipulating me through guilt that, that I was inflicting cruelty on a loved one, when in fact the opposite was true. I'm looking at it from an eternal perspective. They're looking at it only from a temporal, uh, you know, brief, materialistic perspective where all there is is this life, and then after that, there's nothing. Well, I'm not looking at it through that lens. I'm looking at it through the lens that uh, there is a God, and if we pray and do everything we can, we need to do that, and we need to attempt to keep the person alive. But if keeping that person alive becomes impossible without the constant maintenance of electronic machines, and if it becomes impossible, uh, and, and after we have exhausted all the other options, then, I, I, you know, I would give my consent only after I knew that we had tried our best, not that we had, like, partially tried our best. So they did it one more time, and uh, it was obvious that at this point I was convinced by the electronic data and by what I saw that that and by listening to the doctors, I was convinced that uh, he needed to let her go. That it was her, that it, that this this was her time. That God was taking her home because because in order for for her to have and brought back to life and stayed alive, she would have had to constantly be hooked up to machines and 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 uh, other things. But I, what I told them is, I would rather risk her experiencing the pain in the short term. And we're we're talking about a matter of sixty seconds or something. Sixty seconds, one hundred and twenty seconds of of great pain. And I've lived through great pain. So I know great pain is not fun, but I would rather put somebody through great pain, which is not fun, if there's the potential upside that they can, that that would bring about a continuance of of life for them. And I'm not going to make a decision on 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 the short term that would involve uh, making a decision based on the short term decision that well I'm 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 sparing her from from a brief amount of pain, however painful that may be. That's not love. Love wants the best for somebody. So if she has to go through some through bad pain, then, then at least I have made the decision knowing in my heart that I've done everything I could possibly do. And then I'm ready to, to let go. And, and, you know, so, but there, I've been to that hospital a number of times and not even said a word, and you know, 
I, part of what I do for a living is I am a, a, I have been a student of uh, psychological manipulation, psychological persuasion, uh, psychological mind control from things like NLP, neuro linguistic programming, etc. And it was obvious to me from the behavior, the language, and the psychological manipulation being directed towards me and other family members in their pressure to to get us to have her die. It was obvious to me that these nurses and doctors, whether they were aware of it or not, had been through an intensive program on how to get people to to uh, let go of their loved ones and uh, unplug them and, and send them to the to the next world, because if you know the training of those programs like NLP and salespeople and politicians, they all use NLP. It's a very sophisticated form of like a it's a hypnotic psychological persuasion tool. And they were using it on me. Well, I don't make my decisions based on somebody else attempting to manipulate me, whether it's buying a car, buying a house, making a decision about the life and death of a loved one. I don't make those decisions based on somebody else's transparent attempt to manipulate me psychologically. And it's obvious to me because I know the dynamics and the specifics of how you, you employ that manipulation, the wording you use, the hypnotic gestures, the hypnotic body positions. All these things are employed, and the average person, whether it's a Christian parent complaining about curriculum in a public school that's offensive to their children, or whether it's a Christian parent or grandparent or whatever, making a life or death decision about a loved one in a hospital. If you have studied these psychological manipulation, hypnotic control techniques, then, I mean, in three seconds, not three seconds, in three minutes, you can recognize the techniques because the techniques leave specific clues and you know exactly what they're trying to do. Okay, so I brought this up to say this is part of the great spiritual battle that we're involved in in the history of the world. And as such, it's incumbent upon all of us, and I believe that God, through his Spirit, is attempting to communicate to his church and to Christians and to all people who know him. God is essentially saying to his people, it's time for you to step up your game. Knowledge is power. Acquire a knowledge, a basic working knowledge of what's going on, so that when you are in the middle of a spiritual battle, which is what this was, that you know, you know that you you recognize that you're in a spiritual battle. You know the weapons they're attempting to use against you, and you know how to fight the battle spiritually, which involves some understanding of counteracting psychological manipulation. And, and all of us need to gain that knowledge. Now, in a moment, I want to address or talk about what I believe is perhaps one of the top, let's say, 10, one of the top 10 major fundamental problems facing Christians, believers in God, and people who want to do the moral and right thing. And I believe that there's 
approximately 10 major blockages or barriers or strongholds uh, that, that are warring against God's people in this reality system, in this societal system that we live in. And I want to begin with addressing the, the, the first one, and we could begin by addressing the third one or whatever, but it's not necessarily that I'm dealing with it in order of priority. But for me, at least for this program, the Paul McGuire Report, I want to address what I consider the first and perhaps the, the most fundamental part of the spiritual battle we're in. So we need to understand what this is, we need to recognize it, and we need to know how to dismantle it, both in our own lives and effectively dismantle it in the lives of other people. You're listening to the Paul McGuire Report on Paul McGuire. Visit paulmcguire.us, that's paulmcguire.us, and we will be back in just a moment. You are now listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. So, moving on from that uh, spiritual battle in the hospital emergency room, and you know, those kinds of spiritual battles just don't happen in hospital emergency rooms. They, they happen or they erupt often unexpectedly in, in all <clears throat> in all sectors or all areas of life. And that's why you have to put on the full armor of God every day, and you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day, because you don't know in your natural mind what you're going to encounter. So you have to be prepared. You can't often be specifically prepared against a specific battle, because you may not know that's the battle you're going to face. So at least you have to be in a state of spiritual uh, preparedness. And so you put on the full armor of God, uh, addressed in the, the book of Ephesians, where you are told to put on the full armor of God, to gird your loins about the truth, to shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to pick up the shield of faith, where which there uh, where the fiery darts of the evil one or the fiery missiles of the evil one will be blocked from you because they'll hit the shield of faith and they won't hit you. And you put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and you pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you shod your feet with the preparation of the, of the gospel of peace. And uh, you pray always in the Spirit. And so, walking in the presence of God and committing every day to the Lord, and then when you move about in, in, during your day, by faith you're walking with God. By faith, you're, you have the full armor of God on. And so at that point, you, you simply have to trust that uh, whatever comes your way during a particular day or night, whatever comes your way, you have already committed that day and night to the Lord in prayer. So there, there is a built-in restraining of the powers of evil and the demonic powers and, and, and things like, you know, the, the 
conflict between me and the doctor and the nurses, etc. I didn't know I was going to get into that conflict at all. I didn't know I was going to be accused of something that wasn't even remotely, I wasn't even remotely guilty of. I had more love for this person in the emergency room than they ever would. They didn't know this person at all. This person was just a number to them that they had, they, they had met this person maybe 15 minutes before they entered the hospital. They didn't, quote, love the person, and they, they had no moral foundation upon which to accuse me of being cruel. How can they make it this way? They don't know me. They knew nothing about me. They knew nothing about my character, my personality. They're judging me, falsely, by the way. The nurses and the doctors are judging me based on essentially two to five minutes of time which gave them two to five minutes to, to ascertain, to attempt to ascertain what my motive was, and certainly did not qualify them even remotely to, to judge me and accuse me of not being loving. I mean, you know, I don't want to get into that, but it's ludicrous, and the same thing happens to you. But what you have to do is you can't be seduced or sucked into their, into the vortex of, of their uh, spiritually infused uh, psychological manipulation, psychological trap, and yes, demonic deception. Oh, I know that's a heavy thing. I wouldn't say that to them. That's, you know. But, but that's the root of what's going on. You say, well, how can you say that? Because I can say that because I've been walking with the Lord for decades. When you, when you re-enter an experience that you've been through a thousand times at least in my life, and, and you will have entered into it too, at least a thousand times if you're a believer in Christ. And what I mean by that is there are basic telltale signs that you're in an essentially a spiritual and supernatural battle. And when the evidence of these signs begin to show themselves in any environment, hey, guess what? That's God giving you a big, gigantic clue that you're not just in some kind of natural, egocentric battle, but, that, but at the root of this, at the root of this, is a spiritual battle. Now let me let me throw something out to you. What what if I had succumbed to their and this is exactly what it was. What if I had succumbed to their spiritual deception because I was never taught the Bible properly to be able to discern or recognize that I was being pulled into a spiritual deception. What if I had allowed them because I wanted to be accepted? Uh, what if I had allowed them to manipulate me? What if I had yielded to their pressure? And what if I had uh, believed the lie that they were uh, judging me with? And it was a total lie, by the way. What if I had believed the lie? And, and what if I had believed the lie, which went something like this? Well, you're being cruel by keeping her alive. And I said to myself, in my inner self, oh my God, I'm being cruel. Can't be cruel. Can't be cruel. So I'm just going to do what the nurses and doctors say and just have them unplug my loved one from, 
the machines that are keeping them alive. What if I had done that? Because that's what, what probably the majority of Christians would have done. And you know it, and I know it. What if I had did, did that? I'll tell you. I, I will tell you exactly what would have happened. Because in this case, I, I have enough knowledge of the situation to, to, to give you an accurate picture of what would have happened if I had surrendered, and I'm using that word intentionally, if I had surrendered to their psychological depre- uh, uh, pressure and deception. So let me, let me just read you a verse out of the book of Revelation. Okay, in a minute, I'm going to read you the, something out of the book of Revelation, um, Revelation 12, which, which explains this central core dynamic, and let's just call it Spiritual Warfare 101. But, but before I do that, I just want to give you a, a, an imaginary trip of what, 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 what did follow my decision and what would have been blocked spiritually, what would have been blocked in terms of salvation, what would have been blocked in terms of what God wanted to do with my loved one's life as they were facing death. Okay, it's very important that you track with me on this because if you have not already faced this kind of battle, I promise you, you will. And now is the time to be prepared and to be trained to be, on how to be victorious. You don't want to try to learn this, you know, when someone's dying in front of you. That's why if you're going to a real Bible believing church with a real Bible believing pastor, who loves the Lord, who loves the Word of God, who's filled with the Spirit, versus a church which is just playing a church. A real church will equip you. A real pastor will equip you. And that means teaching you how to wage spiritual battle warfare in the real world. And the only way you can do that is you have to uh, learn from men and women of God who have been trained and who, have, who are seasoned spiritual warriors who have fought in their lifetime hundreds and thousands of spiritual battles of all kinds. And I, that's my life. And, and any spiritual leader worth his or her salt, that has been their life. Okay, so let's go back into the emergency room where my loved one is dying. Nurses are pressure. I mean, they're, they're like like hungry dogs barking at me. Okay, and no, there's no there's no sexist intention there, because the male doctor was doing the same thing. They're hammering me. My wife is there. She's sta- she's standing by my side, and she's in agreement with me. She 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 is deferring to me because she's walked with me for decades. She knows me. See, the nurses and the doctor have decided they know me after, you know, two and a half minutes of physical time where they weren't even really talking to me or looking at me. They, they don't know me from a hole in the ground. My wife has spent a lifetime married to me and living with me and knows me, the good and the bad and the ugly about Paul McGuire. So I've been married to my wife for at least 45 years. That's 45 years of intimate knowledge about a person. You know whether that person is cruel or not or loving. 
So you see, that isn't even an issue with my wife. She knows that at the core of my being, I am a loving, caring person, but I am also a warrior. And as a spiritual warrior, I stand my ground. I know how to use the sword of the spirit and defeat principalities and powers. And I know I, I, some of my gifting in life, like you have different gifts in your life, is you don't want to mess with me in a, in a verbal debate, intellectual debate of any kind, because you will lose and you will be very embarrassed. It's not pride. It's discipline, training, preparation for decades. But I, again, I, this has nothing to do with bragging. I am a formidable opponent. And I don't mind debating a doctor or a PhD in this or a PhD in the field of, of uh, ancient Celtic diddly squat theology. Bring it on. Okay, enough of that it's because it's starting to get a little thick. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's, so we're in, we're in the room. My wife is standing with me. She happens to agree with me because she knows the loved one also. And she knows me. And she is, has the Holy Spirit in her, and, and she is an intelligent woman. And so we're, we're united. We're not going to pull the plug on, on a loved one because some doctor or nurse has some hidden quote, uh, quota to meet or, or has some back blank, you know, I don't want to swear word, but just some, you know, ridiculous training on counterfeit compassion. Okay, so. Because I made the decision to stand my ground, and I did not allow them to pull the plug on her, the person that we loved that was dying, who was very advanced in years, by the way. Uh, if I allowed them to pull the plug on our loved one in the emergency room, and this was, when I mean emergency room, I'm talking about this tiny room. That's packed with instrument panels. It's, it's not a spacious room. It's got the bed for the patient. It's got enough room for the nurses and doctors to stand. And basically, it's a room where the patient's hooked up to all the electronic instruments. And they have everything they need in that room to keep somebody alive. So if I allowed nurses and doctors to have pulled the plug, she would have died in that room. Now, what that would have done, if I, if I did what they told me to do, what that would have done was that would have been the end of all communication between me, my wife, and our loved one who was dying. And, and some, you know, she'd get, she'd go in and out. She'd like flatline. They'd hit her with the electrical charge, and they'd bring her back to life. This went on a number of times. Okay, but I didn't allow them to essentially kill her um, in that room. Now, let me tell you briefly what would have happened if I gave in to their accusations, if I gave in to their manipulation about me being cruel. That would have instantly slammed the door shut totally, and there would have been no further communication between us and our loved one. It would have ended right then and there. She would have died. We'd already led her to Christ. She would have gone to heaven, but that would have been the end. Okay, 
because I stood my ground and wouldn't allow it, uh, they they were not allowed to pull the plug and just let her die in the, in that room. So I don't remember all the mechanics of it, but because I made the decision to stand my ground and said no to them, they they legally moved her out of that room into another room where uh, they told me that at a certain point she would die. And it, because she was already at death's door, I just wanted to make sure we weren't we weren't shoving her through death's door through human human manipulation. So they wheeled her into another more quiet private room that was secluded and gave you gave you some space so you could actually be one on one or two on one and talk to your loved one who was dying. Now. I learned a long time ago that just because somebody is unconscious or in an unconscious state, um, when their hearts are beating and they're still alive, even though they cannot talk to you verbally, they can hear you, they can understand you, they can't necessarily reply to you physically or verbally, but they can hear everything that you're saying. And if you're spiritually sensitive, you are sensitive to the fact that they are they are receiving and they're absorbing everything you're saying to them. So because I stood my ground and didn't allow them to kill a loved one, uh, I this opened the door for us to have uh, a secluded room and and one on one time privately uh, with uh, our, our loved one who's dying but could not speak, could not open her eyes was essentially in an unconscious state. And that created, and this is where I really want you to tune in with me, by moving her into the secluded room, we could talk to her one-on-one, and that opened a giant door by which we could minister to our loved one, by which we could say things to our loved one, which we could share Christ and pray for our loved one. Even though they couldn't respond, we could tell that they could receive it and that they understood what we were saying. Okay? Now, so my wife spent time with me and the loved one alone. And my wife got to minister and talk to her loved one. And then my wife had to uh, uh, return to work. Uh, And she just couldn't get out of it. And we we didn't know when our loved one would die. I mean, at this point, we recognized she was going to die. It could have been hours, a day or two or three, possibly even five days, four days. So it wasn't a matter of abandoning the loved one uh, because my wife had to go to work and then she came back. Now, what also happened... As uh, uh, a Christian who walks with the Lord, as a minister, a senior pastor of Paradise Mountain Church, who has has been and was supernaturally called to to preach the gospel by the Lord, not by, I mean, I have the, uh, all the necessary pastoral documents, etc., and training, 
but my calling that I consider the, the most foundational part of my calling is that God supernatural, supernaturally called me into the ministry. I wasn't called by man or denomination or anything else. The bottom line is I was supernaturally called by God to be in the ministry. Okay, so I carry, as many of you do, I carry and walk under an anointing of the Holy Spirit. And not just a generalized anointing of the Holy Spirit, but an anointing of the Holy Spirit, which empowers you uh, spiritually and to not only minister to people, but to evangelize, to teach the word, to deliver people, to pray uh, for miracles and, and things of that nature. So, okay, now I'm alone with the loved one in the room, which again would not have been possible had I yielded to the pressure of the doctors and the nurses. And so I began to just minister to the loved one. And the loved one couldn't respond, but I knew the loved one was receiving it. The loved one was basically in an, in an unconscious state, but I knew that the loved one received it. And I began to pour out my heart to the loved one. I began to pray for the loved one. I, I began to pray, and the Holy Spirit filled the room where, which we were in. This would not have been impossible. This would not have been possible if if I was in a room with the, the nurses and, and the doctor, who who's it, I don't even know if they believed in God, but they, their very spirits would have blocked ministry. So I'm ministering to her. The power of God is filling the room. I can sense it. I, I feel led to. Uh, apologize to the loved one. I don't even know if what I did in terms of losing my patience uh, uh, over, you know, decades of time, I don't even know if I was even guilty of it, okay? But all I knew is this was a holy moment, that, that the Lord was about ready to take her to heaven, and that I wanted to make sure that there was nothing on my heart which I did or did not do. I would just, I just want. I would rather go overboard repenting and have my heart clean before the Lord and have my heart cleaned before the loved one, than than to be so proud that I that I wouldn't repent. And again, I'm not sure that 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 what I, you know what I did could. I'm saying what I did. It wasn't some horrible thing. It was when you're dealing with somebody that's. I, I don't want to discuss private things, but they. They, uh, their their illness, their their disease causes them to to act in 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 very aberrant, very extremely psychologically psychologically trying on the people taking care of her, and I was one of the people that took care of her for years. By the way, that is not selfishness; that is self sacrifice. And I'm not going to go into all the great things I did because it's not, it's not God knows that's the only thing that counts. So I just wanted to make sure my heart was cleaned just in case, just in case my appraisal was wrong. So, and also because of a sincere desire to minister to this person, I wanted to make sure that she knew that I loved her, that I cared about her. So I told her I loved her and I cared about her and I prayed for her. You know, the Lord would comfort her and encourage her again 
to be sure, I led her to the Lord again in prayer. And so I made myself available to minister to her. Holy Spirit did minister to her. I, I can't say she responded to me because she was somewhat unconscious, but I could see what appeared to be a change in the countenance of her face, even though she was unconscious. And I could see a kind of glow uh, come from her face, like like somehow by ministering to her, I had touched certain spiritual cords in her inner being and ministered to certain concerns in her inner being, which I don't even think were concerns to her at all, but I wanted my heart clean. And so I got an hour of very intimate, heart-to-heart, personal time with her to minister to her. I prayed for her so she wouldn't be afraid. I could tell she was afraid of uh, of leaving this earth and going to heaven. But I also prayed for her healing. And so the summary of this is, if I had given in to the psychological manipulation or pressure of the nurses and doctors, we would never have had those several hours of deep, personal, caring, loving, intimate ministry between us and this loved one, which we knew very, very well. The only reason we had this room alone with her, where we could talk to her, and I could worship the Lord in front of her, and pray for her, and lay my hands on her, and pray for her healing, and pray that the power of the Lord would come down upon her and comfort her. The only reason we had that opportunity is because I didn't go along with the death program of the nurses and doctors. I did what I felt was right, and I did what I felt what the Lord wanted me to do. So this whole issue of, oh, it was cruel for me to allow her to be alive. Hey, look, if I didn't allow her to be alive, we would never have been given a room alone with her where we could really say goodbye in an intimate way, really pray for her in an intimate way, and really been with her and minister to her in an intimate way. We had a private room where we were free to talk to her about Jesus and heaven and, and God's love for her and how much we loved her. And so I am sure if you asked her, she would have been so overwhelmingly grateful for that opportunity. And that's just a short story of why it's important in a world which doesn't even know that it's been programmed to be against God, that you know your faith, you know the Word, you know the voice of God, and that you have the discernments, and that you have a working knowledge of how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you have a working knowledge about how to uh, overcome the power of the devil and the demonic powers. And so it was an, it was. I guess it was later that night or early in the morning or the next morning, very early or something. She quietly and peacefully died in her sleep. After we ministered to her, after we poured out our hearts to her, after we prayed for her. You see, if we had allowed her to die prematurely, per the nurses and doctors' instructions, all of that ministry, all of that personal interaction would have been aborted. And I know that's a blunt word, but that's how I think that's the kind of brutality. See, so so who in reality was being cruel? And I wouldn't bring that up to the doctors and nurses. There's no point. In reality, that it, they were being insensitive and cruel and unloving. 
because they had no investment, no, no real personal concern for her. So by doing what the Lord told us to do versus being pressured by secular doctors or, or doctors and nurses with a marginal amount of faith, if any, then we saw somebody minister to, then we saw the burden and the yokes being broken off of somebody's life. And that person, we could see that she was ready to go. She was finally ready to go to heaven because we took care of all the unfinished spiritual business. And in his grace and love, the Lord took her home peacefully. And uh, it was a victory. Now, I want to read you a Bible verse that deals with this. What we're talking about, really, is you and I are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are members of the supernatural body of Christ. We are just passing through this world. This world is not our permanent home. Heaven is our permanent home. Okay, so in the book of Revelation, I want to read you something. And this is, this is about spiritual warfare, big time. And also, this is about spiritual warfare on a macro level and a micro level. So in Revelation chapter 12, it says, uh, starting in verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old. Who's the serpent of old? Well, let's go as old as you can get. That's the Garden of Eden. The serpent of old is the serpent possessed by Satan or Lucifer that was talking to Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden. That's the serpent of old. Um, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. To the death. Okay, so right here you're seeing a passage in the book of Revelation, which is if you fully understand what God is saying in this passage of Scripture, you are learning the most important dynamics in how to wage victorious spiritual warfare. Because ultimately, all spiritual warfare revolves around the central truths that are being revealed in Revelation 12. So if you want to be a victorious spiritual warrior, male or female, if you want to be a victorious spiritual warrior, you must master and own and totally understand the, the dynamic spiritual and biblical truths God is speaking to us in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 11. So let's start with verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Okay, so we learn, number one, in terms of Bible prophecy, war has broken out in heaven or the invisible realm or the spiritual realm. It broke out not only in the Garden of Eden, but there has been a raging war between God 
the demons, the fallen angels, versus, excuse me, there has been a raging war between Lucifer or Satan, the fallen, fallen angels, the demons, the principalities and powers, and they have been waging war against God Almighty, the, the high-level angels like Michael, the armies of angels, and every true believer in Jesus Christ. These, it basically, it's God versus the devil, and they have been in an all-out war since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. And it continues on here in the book of Revelation. In fact, it culminates in the book of Revelation. Verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out. Cast out of where? Heaven. The great dragon is Satan. Notice how often you will see the, the most powerful earthly kingdoms on planet Earth. And they will have as their symbols uh, dragons, pictures and statues and uh, symbols of dragons. So, for example, the, the Rothschild family which is one of the founding families of the Illuminati, and some allege that they are Luciferians and Satanists. When you see, remember, there are two cities of London. There's the city of London that you see in all the tourist photographs, uh, which most people, you know, who go to Britain visit. And then inside that city of London, there exists another city of London, which is a very palatial uh, uh, it's an enclave of the 1%, the super wealthy, the trillionaires, the international bankers, the power and the economic wealth of planet Earth resides essentially in the city of London, inside the city of London. And you'll see many of the properties are owned by Rothschild, the Rothschild family. And one of the symbols that you see in the inner city of London are these pinnacles, which have these large, ornate statues of dragons everywhere. And each dragon is very expensively, very exquisitely sculpted or formed or decorated. Well, why do they have all these dragons all over the inner city of London? Because that this dragon that they have as their primary symbol represents Satan. They are, they are communicating to the entire world that their power, their wealth, their economic domination of planet Earth comes from the fact that they serve the dragon, and the dragon is a symbol of Satan and Lucifer. Very important truth. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old. So the Bible tells you that the great dragon is the serpent of old, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So it is. So for those Bible expositors that want to know what this verse means, it tells you what it means. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And that's why we're cast out to the earth. Well, that means when Satan, when the fall of man occurred, Lucifer or Satan became the temporary god of this fallen world. And this culminates with the, the coming of the Antichrist and the false prophet, and when Christ returns at the second coming to engage Satan and Lucifer, the Antichrist and the false prophet, in the war of Armageddon, 
the, the, the devil or Satan is finally apprehended and thrown into the lake of fire. He's defeated. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him, who's him? Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. Okay, so what we learn here is that in, in the, the central core of every spiritual battle between a believer and the demons or Satan, the central core of every spiritual battle between Satan versus God, at the core of every spiritual battle, on the micro level or the macro level, this principle is in full operation. And when you master this, you will be victorious in spiritual warfare on a level you could never have conceived of. So, let's master this together. Um, number one, the dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Okay, why is the whole world essentially blind, like those doctors and nurses? Why are they collectively blind to the reality of Jesus Christ and to the reality of a real Satan? They're blind to that because they have fallen under a supernatural spell or the supernatural power of the devil and Satan, who have deceived the whole world. So all the peoples and the leaders of the world, with the exception of the true supernatural body of Christ, are walking around in a supernatural state of deception, which blinds them from the truth. Now, in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Okay, so God is thundering from heaven. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, the body of Christ, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. So what this is telling us is that the, at the core, at the root of all spiritual warfare between God and the devil, between believers and the demons, the primary mechanism of spiritual warfare is that the devil, Satan, uh, the principalities and powers, the, the, the serpent of old, they use the spiritual weapon. The devil and Satan use the spiritual weapon of accusing the brethren, or the accuser of the brethren, or using accusation. Now, accusation, we have to get to the dynamics of this to, to reap the benefits. The devil and Satan's main weapon against believers is to function as the accuser of the brethren, or to use accusation against true believers. Remember, accusation is based on a lie, or accusation is based on a partial truth. And let's remember, if we want to be accurate, a partial truth is synonymous with a lie. All accusation 
is a flaming missile of the evil one, but it is also a lie. It's not true. And a, a, a partial truth is the same thing as a lie, because it's a distortion. Even if it's, a, 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 in terms of ratio, a smaller percentage distortion, any distortion within a communication known as truth un, undoes the fact that truth has been spoken. It is now, what was once truth has now been reduced to a spiritual deception. So the devil's battle against humanity from the beginning with Eve, when the serpent of old came to Eve and Adam, when the serpent of old, who is who Satan and the, the devil possess, that serp, serpent of old wages war against the human race, Eve and Adam, and the primary weapon of their warfare is accusation. Accusation. They are accusing Adam and Eve of doing something that they have not done. So accusation is their primary weapon. Or another way of saying it is spiritual deception or or spiritual lies, or lies are their primary weapon. Never forget this, because this is like, if you don't know this, you're going to go down in any spiritual conflict. now salvation and, and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Um, for the accuser of our brethren, who is Satan or the devil, the accuser of our brethren, Satan or the devil, Satan or the devil actually goes before the throne room of God and makes false accusations against God's true children makes false accusations, tells lies, functions as the accuser of the brethren, day and night. So Satan goes before the throne room of God day and night, uh, functioning as the accuser of the brethren, telling lies and deceiving and distorting day and night. And then in verse 11, okay, so, so so if you're trying to do something for God, Satan and the devil, are they're going to wage war against you with lies, with deception, and through functioning as the accuser of the brethren. So going back, and this will happen in your life, when you strip it down to its bare essence, every spiritual battle that you're in ultimately is anchored in the fact that Satan, the devil, and the demons are functioning against you as the accuser of the brethren, and they are making accusations against you before God. Now, you really got to rivet into that. This is the core dynamic in spiritual warfare. And so the devil has weaponized accusations, lies, deceit against believers. Okay? That's his primary weapon. Verse 11. So, okay, so how do we then, as believers in Jesus Christ, as members of the supernatural body of Christ, how do we regain and maintain our spiritual dominion and authority? How do we continue to stand our ground victoriously in light of the fact that we're right smack dab in the middle of an all-out war between Satan and the devil? And then how do we dismantle and disarm 
the devil and his lies, Satan and his lies, the accusations of the devil, the lies of the devil. How do we dismantle all of that? And the Bible says, for the accuser of our brethren, who uh, the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before God, the throne room of God, day and night, has been cast down. So the accuser of the brethren is the devil or Satan. And yet, in the throne room of God, uh, the lies of Satan, the accusations of Satan, are struck down by God. The Satan says, you're guilty. You did this. You did that. All these accusations. But you see, you've got to remember that in the throne room of God, the throne room of God also has a judge, the supreme judge of the universe, which is the supreme being, God the Father, God Almighty. And inside the throne room of God, you have the most expensive and powerful attorney uh, attorney in all the universe. But this attorney, because you put your faith in Christ, is defending you for free. And so every charge, every accusation, every lie that the devil attempts to use against you is dismantled and struck down through the blood of Jesus, which cleanses you and me of every sin, past, present, and future. And so we, how do we overcome all these lies and accusations from the devil? We overcome all of them in the spiritual battle by appropriating or believing in the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us of all of our sin. So then it says in verse 11, And they, that's believers in Jesus Christ, overcame him, who? Satan or the devil, by the blood of the Lamb. So we overcome our enemies, because our enemies are energized by Satan, and we overcome them by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And what is the word of our testimony? The word of our testimony is powerful. The word of our testimony is when we openly share the fact that we have put our faith in Jesus Christ to be our Savior, that we've put our faith in Jesus Christ to cleanse us of all sin, that we've put our faith in Jesus Christ and invited Jesus Christ to come into our lives and make us born again. So, we are victorious and we overcome because of the word of our testimony. And our test, think of a testimony in a courtroom. They're always calling people to testify. Well, we can testify in the courtroom of heaven that even though we may have sinned in the past, that all of our sins have been cleansed or done away with or washed away with or dissolved by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And when we declare that openly, that, that weaponizes our testimony. And it says, and they did not love their lives to the death. So the, the true supernatural believing church does not love its own life first. It, it relinquishes its own life and loves other people first, and it loves Jesus first. So, so what I have learned after decades of ministry is at the core of of the vast majority of spiritual battles that I've been in. And if you try to do anything for Jesus, you are going to enter spiritual warfare sooner or later. I have learned that at the core of the conflict of every spiritual battle that I've been involved in is the, the covert uh, 
operations of the devil or Satan, where the devil or Satan is attempting to accuse me falsely uh, of sins, where the devil is making accusations against me, where the devil is functioning as the accuser of the brethren. But I, the, the way that I overcome that is not going through a whole litany of self-defense testimonies where I attempt to justify myself. The way I overcome that is I put my faith in the blood of the Lamb, which cleanses me of all sin, past, present, and future. And in that way, I defeat the accuser of the brethren. So you can you could just randomly fast forward or reverse search my life and go to any point of spiritual battle. So let's go back to the, the nurses accusing me and the doctor accusing me in the emergency room where a loved one was dying, and they were accusing me of being cruel. Classic example. What, notice that. Notice what they're doing to me. And they're not even aware of it, most likely. Notice what they're doing to me. They are accusing me. They are functioning as the accuser of the brethren. And they are trying to, to defeat me spiritually. They're, again, they probably don't even know it. They're attempting to, to defeat me spiritually through accusation. Now, what is accusation? They are telling lies about me. Uh, they are accusing me falsely, which, which is a form of lying. So they are functioning and being energized by the accuser of the brethren who is using accusation as his primary weapon against me. So they're saying, you're cruel. You're not loving. Those are accusatory accusation words against me that are, in reality, totally based on lies, because it is a total lie. Anybody who knows me knows it is a fact that I am not cruel, and I am not a non-loving person. So the, so the weapons of their warfare is to accuse me by using lies and functioning as the accuser of the brethren. Now, because I stood my ground and didn't believe or receive the accusations they were firing against me, that and I put my faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleansed me from all sin, I, I, either way, if I was guilty, which I was not, of being unloving and cruel, the devil, that's none of the devil's business, or, or the nurses and the doctor's business, because my sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Jesus sees me as totally pure and holy because of the blood. The reality is, though, that I am not non-loving. I am not cruel. In fact, I'm the opposite. I'm known as an extremely loving, kind, and caring person. That's the truth. But I didn't... See, if you, if you get trapped by the devil into defending yourself, you're probably going to lose the battle. I won the battle because I overcame the battle. I could have used... And I'm not bragging. I'm just telling the truth. I could have used... And it's often a temptation for me to use earthly weapons, as it probably is a temptation for you. I could have been tempted, and I could have yielded to using my earthly, fleshly weapons. And in that mode, I could have been seduced into defending myself, because I have a formidable uh, uh, intellectual powers, debating ability, arguing ability, an extremely proficient, logical, rational, uh, analytical methodology of persuasion and defeating people verbally. I'm just, this is, I'm, it's just a gift and I'm good at it. 
but that's also where the devil comes in a, in a, in a, in a modality of, of, of temptation. He looks for your weaknesses, and your weaknesses are often the things that the world thinks are your strengths. And you could be deceived. I could be deceived into thinking they're my strengths. No, thank God, through experience and spiritual warfare, I did not lean on my own understanding. I didn't lean on my own intellectual abilities, debating abilities, logical, rational, analytical abilities. I didn't lean on that. It didn't, doesn't mean I, I presented myself like an idiot. No, I didn't. But I recognized that the primary battle in this emergency room was spiritual. And so I defeated the devil privately in prayer by appropriating the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, because I broke the power of the devil in the invisible realm and not through fleshly self-defense, that cleared the way for the demons to be paralyzed. It bound the power of the devil, and it opened the space and the private environment we needed to win somebody thoroughly to Jesus Christ, to minister to somebody we loved through the power of the Holy Spirit, to love somebody deeply and set them free, to comfort and encourage and, and pour the life of Christ into somebody who was frightened about leaving this earth. But we knew, because we had personally led her to Christ, we knew that she was truly saved. We knew that when she left this hospital, she would go to heaven and inherit eternal life. But the warfare, see, the devil hates, well, everything I just said, the devil hates with a passion. And so he uses lies, et cetera, et cetera. And, but we overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And the same thing will happen to you as you move out in faith and as you make yourself available for God to use to the degree that you use the, the true weapons of your warfare that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, you can overcome the devil, the demonic powers, through the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. So as I have analyzed over decades of ministry and interaction, I've realized that behind the scenes, most often, the core or central area of the spiritual battlefield, over and over and over and over again, is especially when you're a minister. It doesn't matter whether you're officially a minister or God has chosen you to be a minister, to minister. Either way, you're in the service of the King, capital K. And when you're in the service of the King, capital K, uh, you are going to be opposed. The only people who don't get opposed are those that are going in the, the flow of the world's spirit, doing the devil's bidding. When you, The moment you stand up and stop doing the devil's bidding and seeking by the power of the Holy Spirit, to do the Lord's will. The moment you have that major shift in your consciousness and your worldview, and you begin to operate for Him, not for you, the moment you do that, you will discover, you will discover that you will enter inevitably in a series of spiritual warfares. But you will have the opportunity to overcome the devil, the demons, the satanic powers through the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. And so what I want to encourage you to do is sharpen up your spiritual vision, sharpen up your spiritual discernment so that you recognize the minute the devil throws, you know, the bait out for you to bite the hook, the minute the devil, just like, you know, the devil baited Eve and Adam 
that he, first he baited them, then they disobeyed God, then the fall of man occurred. It's the same process. The devil will bait you. The goal is to get you to, to, to do the devil's bidding. So you have to have a heightened spiritual discernment, and you need to see clearly before it happens proactively. You need to see the devil and, and see his strategies. And the moment he begins the very beginnings of his strategy to bring you down, you have to defeat him proactively through the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. Okay, you're listening to the Paul McGuire Report on Paul McGuire. We, we, look, this is the choice that we have. In the time period that we're in, the clock is ticking. We either mobilize in the Spirit of God and the Word of God and under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ, we either take our nation back lovingly and spiritually, we either push back on the devil's attempts to control our nation and to, to control our world, or we disobey God, we forfeit our call, we relinquish or abandon our responsibilities, and through our disobedience to the Word of the Lord, we allow the devil to take the territory of earth and the territory called America. None of that, none of that is in accordance with the will of God. If that were to happen, you can be assured that the reason it happened was because believers did not rise or respond to the call of Jesus Christ when he blew the trumpet and called his heavenly army to occupy until he comes. We have a job to do. And I need you to help me fulfill our part of the job, our part of the mission. So I simply ask you to ask the Lord, Lord, how much would you have me give financially in terms of a donation or a contribution? And what, whatever God tells you to give, simply obey him and give what he tells you to give. Then I want to thank you for praying for us and everyone associated with this ministry. We proceed victoriously to the degree that you're, you're willing to stand with us in spiritual warfare. So I call upon you to be a spiritual warrior for this ministry. And then finally, I need your help continually in defeating the rigging system, the falsification of our numbers, the falsification of our placement on the search engines. There is no question whatsoever that anyone who is choosing to speak true Christian tr truth in the public arena, you're going to be subjected to blowback, counterattack, marginalization, minimalization, etc., etc. I need you to stand with me and, and correct it when you see it on the internet. And uh, to, the, to the degree that you're willing to do that, united, we can take back the land and occupy the land that Christ has called us to occupy in the last days. Okay, this is the Paul McGuire Report. Be sure to visit paulmcguire.us. That's paulmcguire.us. And we will be back in just a moment. This is the Paul McGuire Report. I'm Paul McGuire. What is going to happen to the United States of America and the world? Well, let's start from, like, this moment forward. We are <clears throat> entering a season of perhaps the greatest and most intense environment of spiritual warfare and spiritual conflict that has ever happened in America and perhaps in many places of the world. 
to deny that is to succumb to a lie or spiritual deception. So the question is, what is your responsibility and my responsibility in light of that truth? Our responsibility is to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, renew our minds with the Word of God, and train our minds and train our spirits to listen to the counsel and the voice of the Lord based on the precepts of His Word. And you will discover to to the degree that you're willing to do that, you can train your mind to hear that still, small voice of the Lord. And the Lord will direct you individually and specifically with his still, small voice. And to everyone that will accept that spiritual call upon their lives, God will respond to you accordingly. So, in other words, if you hear the still, small voice of the Lord giving you a burden to do something, telling you to pray for this, telling you to do that or to to do whatever, to the degree that you not only hear what the Lord is telling you, but to the degree that you're willing to do the very things that the Lord is placing on your heart and speaking to you about in a still, small voice, to whatever degree that you're willing to be faithful to his call, which, which basically means you're willing to put into action with your behavior and actions what he's requiring, requiring you to do, to whatever degree you're willing to be faithful to what the Lord is calling you to do, it is to that degree that you will personally, and those that you love, will personally experience a quantum multiplication of everything that the Lord tells you to do, and you're faithful to do it. So whatever area it may be that the Lord is calling you to do something in, like let's say the Lord is putting it on your heart to help fight the rigging war against this ministry and others. A rigging war is essentially a war where the enemy is using statistical lies, statistical manipulation via computer technology to undermine an individual or destroy a ministry. And to the degree that you're willing to listen to the Lord and rise to the challenge and, and be part of the solution, that is, it's to the same degree that you will see a noticeable multiplication uh, of your abilities, your influence, your finances, your effectiveness, your own personal growth, the growth of others. And you will see with your own eyes, if you're, if you're looking carefully, you will see with your own eyes a distinct and measurable increase of, let's say, tangible blessing on all areas of your life, business, family, marriage, singleness, gifting. You will see a tangible multiplication, which is, in a sense, a reward from the Lord for being faithful to act upon uh, the gifts that he has given you. And you will see, and this is, this is the critical part, you will see a noticeable multiplication in those areas of giftings that the Lord has given you to the degree that you have decided to and been faithful in employing those giftings and using those giftings 
as God has called you and directed you to use them. Now, this is no small thing. It's a secret of success. It's a secret of favor. It's a, it's a secret of promotion. It's a secret of how to harness, how to receive the supernatural power and blessing of God. And it's based on the law of reciprocity or the law of sowing and reaping. To the degree that you're willing to sow spiritual seed with your gifting, your talent, your finances, your wisdom, your time, or whatever it is, to the degree that you're willing to to respond and listen to the call of God is to the degree that you will see a harvest and a multiplication uh, regarding those areas of gifting. So, uh, a, a, a supernatural way that you can experience being victorious and being an overcomer in spiritual battle is God blesses and rewards those people that when he speaks to those people or instructs those people or directs those people or or calls those people to do specific things, and they don't play deaf when, when God speaks to them, but they actually hear God, and then they respond to God in obedience, and then with their actions and behavior, they do the very things that God is telling them to do, that individual discovers joyously, if you will, that individual discovers that they enter a zone of a supernatural multiplication of their talents, abilities, and giftings, and that their talents, abilities, and giftings may previously seemed bottled up, or previously they may have seen thwarted or, or, or locked in or, or, or stunted in their growth. And previously, you may have experienced frustration and uh, a sense of, maybe even a sense of despair. Now, here's the critical thing. All of that, all of those negative things you were experiencing, whether you realized it or not, were connected to your sowing of your talents, your money, your ability, your giftings. They were the result of your sowing the things that God has given you, the giftings that God has given you, but you weren't sowing them in in the fields that God was speaking to you about in his still small voice. And by fields, I mean the areas or the lands that God wanted you to plant seeds in for the purpose of harvest, harvest for the kingdom of God, harvest of souls, Harvest of revival. Now, this is the this is the the, the 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 critical truth that God's trying to impart unto His people. The world teaches us that we need to cling on to, hold on to, grab it, protect it, you know, guard it, board it. That that whole mentality. Well, that that mentality produces. Well, actually, that mentality releases a curse on your life. You want to. Be available to and release the blessing of God on your life. And the way that you do that is you make the decision to change. You realize that America is going to face, and the world is going to face, incredible challenges in the upcoming years. 
And despite that, God is able to supply your needs. God's able to answer your prayers. God's able to protect you. God's able to bless you supernaturally and through the multiplication of your natural talents. The way you release that is you seek the Lord, and then very carefully you pay attention to the commands and directives of the still small voice of the Lord, so that when he speaks to you in your inner man or inner woman, you are obedient. You're, you're sure to do the very things that he's telling you to do in the way that he's telling you to do them. And to the degree that you're willing to do that, you will experience the supernatural blessing of God on your life and on the different things he's called you to do. You won't just be struggling all by yourself in frustration. You will literally feel like the wind behind your back. But you will also recognize that that wind behind your back is the Lord God Almighty. God bless you. This is Paul McGuire. Visit paulmcguire.us. That's paulmcguire.us. Paul